And now, O oh Lord, as we come to Your Word, we ask for it to have a sanctifying effect on our lives. We remember that Your Word is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is inspired. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would use Your Word to conform us to Your image, to, to Christ's image. We pray that You would use it to strengthen us We pray that you would use it to correct us if necessary. We pray that you would use it to comfort us. Lord, you know our needs. And we remember that you're an almighty God. And you can use your word however you please. It will not return to you void. And so we pray, O Lord, that your word would accomplish your work in us. We pray, O Lord, for our children and we rejoice at uh, a new child um, in, our, in our congregation. Uh, we pray for the children who are both inside the womb and outside the womb, and we pray, O oh Lord, that you would, in your time, save them. Lord, please, please save our children. We pray that uh, you would use our parents um, and the church family uh, to show them the, the blessedness that's found in Christ. And we pray the same thing for ourselves, O Lord, as we come to your word. Show us the blessedness that is found in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 14. We will be continuing our study of the Gospel of John as we... Look at John chapter 14, verses 15 to 17 today. I thought I was actually going to get to verse 20, but there's no way. There's so much in verses 15 to 17. This chapter, in case you can't tell, since I'm only preaching like three verses a week, uh, this chapter is so rich. This chapter is so filled with important doctrine and with just comforting practical theology. So we'll be looking at John chapter 14, verses 15 to 17 today. Jesus spent approximately, give or take, 33 years on earth before ascending into heaven, where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. 33 years on earth, and in his final three years of his life, he ministered publicly. And as he did, he called 12 disciples to follow him. And during those three years, these disciples whom he called to himself went wherever he went. They did whatever he did. They participated in a lot of the things that he did. And when they didn't participate, they were at least able to have a front row seat where they could visually observe what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was teaching. And throughout these three years, Jesus taught them. Jesus led them. He laughed with them. He encouraged them. Sometimes he rebuked them when they deserved it. Sometimes he rebuked them. But all that he did with his disciples for these three years, it was all for the sake of personally revealing the power of God and the coming of God's kingdom to them. And so with all this in mind, we can understand how confused and how distraught the disciples must have been when Jesus told them that the best thing, the most beneficial thing that He could do for them was to leave them. After three steady years of walking together, the time for that was coming to an end. 
And so Jesus said at the beginning of chapter 14, He said, do not let your heart be troubled. Good reminder for us, right? Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me, He said. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is a promise of heaven. And this promise of heaven is a wonderful and encouraging and comforting truth. And and that's what the disciples needed. And Jesus knew it. The disciples needed to be comforted in that moment. They needed to be encouraged in that moment. But then, once He clarified all this for the disciples, He proceeded by making a series of statements which on the surface, uh, we saw in our last study, seemed kind of incredible uh, p- perhaps they sound uh, they sounded a little bit too good to be true, and we know that generally speaking, if something sounds too good to be true, what do you and I typically think? It is too good to be true. This can't be real. Uh, you know, either I'm not understanding it or they're lying to me. But Jesus meant every single word that he spoke to the disciples when he said, "He who believes in me." The works that I do, He will do also, and greater works than these He will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. It Sounds too good to be true. But as we saw last time, in our last study, these are very serious promises that history and history attests to the fact that they have been fulfilled and they continue to be fulfilled. We saw that the most reasonable explanation, the most reasonable interpretation of these statements was that it would apply to all of Christ's sheep throughout the ages to come. It was not a promise that His people in the age to come would perform more visually spectacular or impressive, astounding miracles by natural man's understanding. Rather, it was a promise that His Gospel would spread, that it would prevail, that it would make its way into every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that the gates of hell would not prevail against His church. But that leaves us with a question that is just begging to be asked and answered. And that question is, how would they do this? How? How in the world would the disciples and and those who would believe the testimony of the disciples, uh, even to this day and beyond, that, that includes us, how would we be able to accomplish this incredible success that Jesus was predicting? That we would even do greater works than He did. Preaching and spreading the gospel is truly an overwhelming task. That's the task that's been given to the church, and that's what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about greater things being done. Jesus never saw 3,000 people converted on the spot, but on the day of Pentecost, the disciples did. But if our theology is straight, if, if our theology is sound, if we understand man's fallen condition, then we understand that we are exactly, uh, spiritually speaking, like Ezekiel preaching over a valley of dry bones whenever we preach the gospel to the lost. 
Our hope is the same hope that Ezekiel had. That God will use us somehow by, by His power and by His grace to accomplish His purposes. And so with that said, Jesus will now continue to explain how the church through the ages would prevail against the gates of hell. How the church would do greater works than even Jesus Himself did. He's going to explain in the passage at hand today how the church would be able to do greater works than He did. And the answer is, first, through our obedience, and secondly, by sending the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Our obedience and the power of the Holy Spirit ensure that the gates of hell will never prevail against God's plans. That brings us to the point of the passage that we'll be looking at today. The point of this passage is that the church will do greater works than Christ by walking in love-motivated obedience to Him and by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. So, having just told His disciples, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, He gives us the, kind of the second half of this promise. He continues by explaining this promise. How is that possible that He would give us anything if we ask in His name? Does it mean that He will give us anything and everything our sinful hearts desire? Spoiler alert, no. No, it does not. He, he says this in verse 15. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus continues and says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is terrible and distressing and maybe even angering to see false teachers teaching a message that, you know, basically if you just add in Jesus' name to the end of a self-serving prayer, that God must oblige those prayers. That's not at all what Jesus is saying here. We saw in our, our previous lesson that to pray in someone else's name means to pray in that person's interests. It's to pray selflessly. It's to pray, in this case, specifically for God's will, for God's interests. It's to pray specifically that the Father would be glorified in the Son. We have to see that what Jesus says here in verse 15 has everything in the world to do with what He said in verse 14. John has told us of Jesus' great love for His own. He's told His disciples that He gives them a new commandment that they love one another as He has loved them. And now, this is the first time that Jesus turns His attention to the love of His disciples. This is the first time that He says anything about their love for Him, although He undoubtedly knows that they love Him. And He doesn't give them an imperative. That is, He doesn't give them a command here. He doesn't give them an instruction here. No, what Jesus does here is He tells us what the fruit will be of true love. What he does is he tells them that true love for him will result in desiring to please him and desiring for his will to be done. What's his will? It's revealed in the commandments. If we love Christ, we will obey his commandments. 
Let me tell you what Jesus was not saying here. He was not saying that if we love Him, we have an obligation, moral or otherwise, to keep His commandments. That's not what He was saying. In other words, Jesus was not saying that we prove or demonstrate our love to Him by obeying Him per se. I know that's how a lot of people interpret this. They'll say, well, if you're not obeying, you need to obey to prove your love for Jesus. Uh, That's not how the Reformers saw it, and that's not how I see it. Uh, Rather than emphasizing that obedience proves our love and devotion to Christ, and so if we're we're being disobedient, uh, we'd better snap to it and, and get in line and start obeying, what Jesus was saying here is that obedience is a natural result, that it is a natural fruit, a consequence of love for Him of true love for Him. As the Reformers would say, we believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? We all believe that. But the faith through which we're saved is not alone. The faith through which we are saved bears fruit. It is accompanied necessarily, automatically, naturally by works. That's why James would say, faith without works is dead right because true faith is accompanied by good works faith is a root that always produces a certain type of fruit and jesus is saying here that obedience to his commandments is part of that fruit true love for god true love for christ friends will never ever 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 result in full-on lawlessness now, now we understand that we carry with us the corruptions of the flesh. We all have a flesh nature. Even though we are new creations in Christ, we carry with us all the corruptions of the flesh, all the temptations. And that our obedience on this side of heaven is always going to be imperfect. John says in 1 John, the person who says they have no sin is a liar. The truth is not in them. So we know that our obedience on this side of heaven is always going to be imperfect. But God's people, those who love Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will never ever live their lives as if they are their own gods who make their own rules. Christ's sheep will not live their lives as if the Good Shepherd has given us freedom to just, for the rest of our lives, do whatever we want by our own wisdom. No, those Sheep who live like that uh, are sheep of another fold. God's people will not live lawlessly. We, We have lawless moments. I get it. We have moments where we choose sin instead of righteousness. I get it. But we won't just continue in that manner. And there are two reasons that we will obey Him. First, we will desire to. Why will we desire to? Because of the second reason for our obedience, we have received a new nature. Indeed, Peter tells us that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Listen to what God said to Ezekiel about the new covenant, which would be established by the blood of Christ, shed for the forgiveness and remission of sins. God said to Ezekiel of the new covenant, He said this, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. It's from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. Authentic, real love for Jesus is evidenced by obedience. That's the fruit that true love for Jesus will produce in every Christian's life. If we live by our own rules, as if there is no God, or as if God has given us no instructions to live by, if we live lawlessly, with no desire to walk in the light, with no desire to please God by submitting to His will as revealed in His Word. That is definitive proof that we don't have love for Christ. Regardless of what we might say, regardless of what we might think, regardless of even what we might have done. Uh, Maybe you said a prayer to accept Jesus into your heart. Uh, Maybe you filled out a card after an altar call. Whatever. Maybe you got baptized. Great. You know what? There are going to be scores of people in hell who did all those things and then went on to live their lives lawlessly. Because they never actually had love. True, authentic love for Christ. The person who loves Jesus, truly and authentically loves Him, desires to submit their will to Him. They will sin, but they will not be comfortable with their sin. They will be broken about their sin. Whereas the natural man, how does he feel about his sin? He loves it. He's prideful about it. He's defiant with it. The desires of the flesh that the Christian has, he will wage war against. He won't just sit there and let them dominate him. He resists them. He goes to war against those desires to bring them into submission to Christ. The person who truly loves Jesus would never, ever, ever treat Jesus like he's some kind of cosmic vending machine. He wouldn't pray for something just for his own selfish desires. He wouldn't pray for sin, sinful desires. No, he he doesn't want those things. So he would not pray for those things. The person who loves Jesus, who truly loves Jesus, abhors the idea that Jesus exists to give us whatever we want. And the reason is because love for Jesus causes us to desire to give Him what he wants. What does he want? He wants our love. He wants our obedience. And love produces obedience. And wouldn't you agree that this only makes sense? That we wouldn't desire selfish, sinful things? That we would only desire what Christ desires if we love him? Think of, think of it this way. It makes perfect sense. The husband who doesn't love his wife is going to behave drastically, radically different from the husband who does love his wife. And if our love for Christ is greater than it is for anything or anyone else, as it should be, wouldn't it only make sense 
that if we truly love Christ, that it will drastically and radically affect our actions, our behaviors, our attitudes, our desires. This doesn't mean that I'm happy to obey this commandment but, uh, you know, because it's not something that, that tempts me or appeals to me, but I refuse to obey this commandment and that commandment over there uh, because it prohibits me from doing something that I enjoy. No, Jesus does not say that we will obey some of His commandments if we love Him. Implicit in what He says here is that we will be impartial to them. That is to say that we will desire and we will strive to keep all of them. Not because we've got a checklist of things to obey, but because we know what pleases God if we know His Word. This is something that apparently really stuck with John, who was a disciple in the upper room here when Jesus said these words, but who would go on to be one of the apostles and who would write some epistles uh, decades later where he would hone in on this theme of loving Jesus, producing obedience to His commandments. He, he'd touch on this repeatedly in his first epistle. He'd write in 1 John chapter 5, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. By the way, when John says, observe His commandments... He's not saying that we'll just stand there and look at them. He means we will put them into action. We will practice them. We will obey His commandments. We search for them in Scripture. We memorize them. We hide them in our hearts. And we put that knowledge into action in our lives. But here's where it gets scary. right? Maybe I should say here's where it should get scary. For a lot of modern churchgoers and church stay-homers, whatever you want to call them, who claim to be Christian, John flips this coin over and he shows us the underside in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, where he writes this. He says, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. That should be terrifying to the person who claims to be a Christian and yet has zero interest in walking in obedience to what God has instructed. There are plenty of people, I get it, in our day and age, there are plenty of people who would say, well, you're just a legalist. You're like the Pharisees. You know, you're, you're, just, a, you're just a hypocrite. Uh, maybe they'd say something like, you know, I'm, I'm not under the law, so I can do whatever I want. I'm under grace. Uh, that is not what it means to be under grace. Uh, friends, if, if that's you, if that's your attitude toward obedience, I have to warn you that if you have zero desire to obey Christ's commandments, you also have zero assurance, true assurance of being truly saved. Christ did not come to free us from, uh, to sin. He came to free us to not sin. We're not freed to sin. We're freed from sin. We're not in bondage to sin anymore. In other words, sin doesn't have to corrupt everything we do. We can be driven now by a desire to walk in obedience and to glorify God. He has set us free from the penalty of sin. He has set us free from the power of sin. But the person who hasn't been set free in the least bit from the power of sin has no 
reason to think that they have been set free from the penalty of sin. In that sense, our sanctification is evidence of our justification. In this case, the answer for the, for the person who thinks, yeah, I can just do whatever I want. Oh, you're, you're saying I have to walk in obedience? The answer is not just, okay, you need to stop sinning then. The answer is not just, you know, go see a behavior modification specialist, somebody who can train you like a monkey to do this and not do that. No, that is not the answer. The answer is to love Jesus. To look to the cross and see the greatest demonstration of love that has ever, ever been demonstrated. And to love Him. To believe in Him savingly. To bring your will and to bring your desires all under His sovereign authority. The only thing that will cause a person to stop desiring sin is a desire to honor and glorify Christ that is driven by sheer, pure, unadulterated love for Jesus. If your love for Jesus drives your desire to please Him, resulting in obedience, it will also drive your prayers to ask in accordance with His will. This is why He said in the verse prior, if you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. So let us understand, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus said, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments, what He was saying is that He alone has the authority to instruct us as to how we should live and what we should desire. And let us understand that a love for God that does not result in obedience to His commandments, or at least an increasing desire to be obedient, isn't really a love for God at all. That's a God of your own imagination. One final thought before we continue. What are Jesus' commandments? Where, where would we find Jesus' commandments? Well, His commandments would include everything that He taught. He summed up all the commandments of the law with the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. He taught and He affirmed everything that Scripture taught and affirmed. Which means, in other words, that His commandments include the entire revelation of God found in Scripture. This type of submitted, devoted love is the first thing that explains how the people of God, redeemed by Christ throughout the ages, would do greater works than Christ did. It's the first key in explaining why the gates of hell would not prevail against His church. Now you might say, oh, all this sounds really burdensome. Keeping His commandments sounds very burdensome. It sounds legalistic. John says in 1 John that it is not a burden. It's a joy. And the reason that it's not a burden is because Christ promised to send another helper, as it's translated in the NASB, helper. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus continues saying, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. 
Now earlier, Jesus said that He was going to His Father to prepare a place for them in His Father's house. Uh, He was going to prepare heaven for them. But there's another reason He's saying here that He went to the Father. And that is to ask the Father to send another Helper who would be with us forever. Now before we go too much further, let me point out that the word that gets translated helper here in the NASB 1995 edition gets translated in a variety of ways in other translations. There are so many different ways uh, this word gets translated. It confuses people, I think. Uh, Some translations say comforter. Uh, That's the word that you'll find in the King James Bible, for example. The problem with calling him comforter is that uh, comforter today doesn't mean the same thing that comforter meant when the King James Version of the Bible was written. Uh, Today, when we think of a comforter, we think of somebody who, uh, if you're feeling sad, they'll come up and give you a hug. Uh, If you're feeling down, they'll they'll give you a word of encouragement. They'll they'll comfort you, right? Uh, Maybe they say nice things to you every day to get you motivated. Uh, But the word comfort... Uh, in the in Old English, uh, as it was translated in the King James, uh, the word comfort was a combination of two Latin words, which meant with strength. With strength. So a comforter, 400 years ago, was somebody who gave you strength. Our concept of, of comfort uh, or comforter today it just does not mean the same thing. So I, I don't like the, the term comforter. Uh, speaking of comfort, I'm also not very comfortable with the NASB translation of the word either, for the record. Uh, calling the, uh, the Holy Spirit a helper implies that we are the ones in charge and that He is kind of our, uh, our servant, or at least uh, he, He's inferior to us in some way, but we're the ones steering the ship. He's just there to help. Uh, the implication of this term is that he, and he is God, uh, is inferior. And we know that that's not true, right? We know that God is never inferior or subordinate to anyone. Uh, so what word, what translation works best here? Uh, well, the Greek word, as you may know, is parakleton or, or parakletos, uh, which is the word that gives us the old English word paraclete. That was a word, you can find it in uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, uh, where you'll see it defined as an advocate. If if you're like me, you have to look that word up because you've actually never used it in a real-life sentence in a conversation. But in the Middle Ages, a paraclete was a common word. It was essentially a defense attorney. Uh, So I believe that all of this helps us to understand what this implies, what this entails, what the best translation would be. He's an advocate. I think that's probably the closest translation if you don't want to call him the paraclete uh, because you're not familiar with Old English. Uh, But understanding that he is an advocate who helps, who counsels, who guides, who instructs, who strengthens. And the reason I say this is because Jesus says that he will ask the Father to send another another paraclete or another advocate to be with his people. What that means is that there was already one in place at this point who was going to be replaced. In other words, the Holy Spirit 
would assume the same role with God's people that He had with the disciples. Jesus helped them. He taught them. He counseled them. He strengthened them. He led them. And the Holy Spirit would resume these roles. See, the implication that we get from that word, another, is that the disciples already had one who was leaving and being replaced. John never uses this word paraclete of Jesus, by the way, in the fourth gospel, which we're studying, but it is a term that he used in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he writes this. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, there's the translation. That's the translation that I think works best because the Holy Spirit is resuming Christ's duties. He's taking over for Jesus uh, so, uh, so that Jesus can go to the Father. Now, Jesus is currently our advocate before the Father in heaven where He's seated at the right hand of the Father and He intercedes in prayer for us. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is currently our advocate on earth where He strengthens us and teaches us and guides us and does all the things that Jesus did with the disciples. So for the next two chapters or so, Jesus is going to have a lot of things to say about the Holy Spirit. There will be several uh, mentions of the Holy Spirit in the next couple chapters where we'll learn more about what the Holy Spirit would do. Uh, first, to strengthen the disciples uh, after Jesus' departure. That's what he says here in this passage. But secondly, the Holy Spirit would teach them and bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said. That's what uh, Jesus reveals in John chapter 15, verse 26. Third, he, the Holy Spirit uh, would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment according to John 16, 7-11. Fourth, he would point to and glorify Jesus. Chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. So Jesus calls the Holy Spirit another helper or, or advocate or paraclete. Jesus was the first helper. The Spirit would continue Jesus' work into and through His disciples. And this fulfills what God said to Ezekiel about the new covenant, doesn't it? He said in chapter 36, verse 27 of Ezekiel, He said, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. Would we be careful to observe His ordinances without His Spirit being within us? The implication there is no. No. A crucial part of the Holy Spirit's job or role is producing holiness, which is why we call Him the Holy Spirit, and righteousness and obedience in the lives of God's people. And by the way, I do think it's worth noting that when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we are talking about a who, not a what. We don't refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. For the same reason, we don't refer to Jesus or the Father as it's. Uh, because they are not its. We recognize that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing, not a force, not a power. No, He, not it. He is a person. The third person of the Trinity. Now there was an, an interesting study that was uh, released, uh, on, I think it was on Friday, maybe it was Thursday this past week, 
uh, in which 176 uh, or 2,000 adults were surveyed um, out of an estimated 176 million American adults who identify as Christian. Uh, And the study shows, it says, in general, that while a majority of America's self-identified Christians, including many who identify as evangelical, believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is the creator of the universe, more than half reject a number of biblical teachings and principles, including the existence of the Holy Spirit. More than half. And it goes on to say this. Some 62% of self-identified born-again Christians contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. End quote. 62%. Now, it's possible that maybe some of the people that they surveyed were Jehovah's Witnesses. That is the Jehovah's Witness understanding of the Holy Spirit. They believe the Holy Spirit is just a... Uh, an inanimate power, uh, the inanimate power of God. But that's not what Scripture reveals the Holy Spirit to be at all. Friends, what that tells us is that 62% of self-professing Christians are not Christians. They are not Christians. That is an unorthodox, that puts them outside of the Christian faith. That denial of the Holy Spirit being a person. The Holy Spirit is A person, not a thing. He has a will. He has everything that a person would have. He has an intellect. He has strength. He has power. But he isn't power. Just like uh, I've got shoes, but I don't, you know, I wouldn't say that I am shoes. But notice that he's referred to here. Jesus refers to him here as the spirit of truth. He's referred to this way because he attests to the truth. John 16, 13, uh, Jesus says, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He's also referred to as the Spirit of truth because He will glorify Christ and point to Christ. He's not trying to get attention to Himself. He's trying to point us to Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus continues saying of him, He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. But notice what Jesus says here, back in chapter 14. Notice what Jesus says here in the passage that we're looking at today. He says that the world cannot receive him. The world cannot receive him. Let's start with this. Who is or what is the world? Now, I've noted in previous uh, studies of this that this term, cosmos, is the Greek word. Uh, World is how it gets translated. Uh, It has ten different meanings. And figuring out which one of those meanings works means looking at the context and figuring out, getting clues from the words and and the things being said around it. Uh, Sometimes the word world refers to just the physical world, the trees, the uh, the ocean, the land, things like that. Sometimes it refers only to God's people. Sometimes it only refers to the unregenerate, right? The, the rebellious system of the world that stands against God. Uh, sometimes it means all of the above. So the way to know which definition 
is applicable to this passage is to examine the context. And in this case, we know that it can't be the physical world. It can't be uh, God's, uh, God's people who cannot receive the Spirit because Jesus is saying that His people will receive the Spirit. So what that leaves us with is it refers to the unregenerate. The unregenerate are the world in this context. The unregenerate cannot receive the Spirit. Those who stand in rebellion against God cannot receive the Spirit. Why can the world not receive the Spirit? Why why can they not know or receive the Spirit of truth? Because they do not see Him or know Him. See, the way natural man thinks and operates is by the idea that seeing is believing. If he can't see it, he won't believe it. But that's not the way God's kingdom operates, as we've seen so many times throughout this study. In God's kingdom, believing is seeing. Further, what does the unregenerate man do with the truth that he instinctively knows about God? He suppresses it. He hates it. And so he suppresses it in unrighteousness. And and there are no exceptions to this. That is what the unregenerate man does. By nature, that's all you ever did before God, by His grace, opened your eyes to the truth. To believe. But notice the strong language that Jesus uses here. He doesn't say the world doesn't want to receive the Holy Spirit. He says what? He says they cannot. It is not possible for the world to receive the Spirit. Because by nature, because of the corruption of sin, man hates the truth about God. He has an aversion to it. That is the world's condition. Unregenerate man's natural condition. The world neither sees him nor knows him, Jesus says. The implication here, by the way, is that the disciples would. And that the people of God who are able to see and know Him, it would all be because of God's grace. If the Holy Spirit is invisible, by the way, how are the disciples and how are we able to see Him? If He's just a spirit. And Jesus is the one who... That's the the only physical representation of God there's ever been. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Universal. Absolute. This this applies to every natural man. He goes on to say, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now that word appraised can also be translated as seen or examined. One of the things that we have to gather from that verse, 1 Corinthians 2.14, is that in order for a person to accept the things of the Spirit of God, one can no longer be a natural man. One already has to be delivered from that position. That is to say that they must first be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit of truth not only inspired the writings of Scripture according to 2 Timothy 3.16, but He also illumines the Scriptures, meaning He shines spiritual light on them in order that we may see and understand. Without this illumination by the Holy Spirit, Paul says, the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to a natural man. Because these things are not naturally appraised or naturally seen or examined, but they are spiritually appraised. This is the type of seeing that Jesus is referring to here. This is the type of seeing that Jesus is implying His people will have. He wasn't speaking of physically seeing the Holy Spirit, but of seeing Him spiritually. Those who are of the world cannot see Him because as Jesus says to Nicodemus back in chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What comes first then? Faith or regeneration? Regeneration. Regeneration comes before faith. Regeneration is the cause of faith. Regeneration precedes Faith. faith can only be the result of regeneration in the same way that obedience is the result of love for Christ. But look what else Jesus said to the disciples. He said, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. What he's saying here is that the spirit of truth has been with them all along. They know him already, even though they don't realize it. Because the Holy Spirit had come upon Jesus at His baptism and had led Jesus throughout the years of His earthly ministry. He had silently, the Holy Spirit had silently been there dwelling in the midst of the disciples in the person of Jesus. So, because the disciples knew Jesus, they knew the Spirit of truth. They knew the Holy Spirit. But Jesus tells them that the Holy Spirit not only was, was then abiding with them, but that He would dwell in them. He would dwell in His people. Jesus led and instructed the disciples, but He had to be present with them, physically present with them, to lead and instruct them. Could, could Jesus be in multiple places at the same time? No. Not in the limitations of the flesh. But the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, can be. He's infinite. He's spirit. He can be everywhere at once. He can be multiple places all at one time. He is in multiple places all at one time. And thus it was better, it was more beneficial that Jesus go to the Father and ask the Father to send another helper, another paraclete. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to see and believe the truth. He shows us the truth of our fallen condition. He shows us the truth of Christ and glorifies Christ as the one and only mediator who stands between fallen man and holy God. He continues the work of Christ even to this day around the world. We don't do greater works than Christ by our own power, friends, or by our own wisdom or by our own convictions, but through the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. He strengthens, He leads, He teaches God's people, and He dwells within us. Now we understand what Paul wrote to the Romans 
when he said in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Several years ago, maybe I've told this story before, but several years ago, someone who listens to my sermons online sent me a link to her pastor's Easter sermon from that year. And her pastor was uh, preaching out of Romans 10.9, where, where it says, uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you, you will be saved. And he said, okay, now I don't want anybody to leave here today without being saved. So on the count of three, we're all going to say, Jesus is Lord. And I thought, wow, that is really missing the mark. Really missing the mark. Uh, That is not how it works. See, what, what that pastor was missing is that nobody does this without the ministry of the Holy Spirit preparing their hearts to believe. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.3, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if somebody truly says it the way that Paul meant it in Romans 10.9, it's because the Holy Spirit has already been ministering to that person, preparing their heart to believe. The Holy Spirit's ministry of dwelling within God's people started on the day of Pentecost, the day on which 3,000 sinners were drawn to Christ by the grace of God through the power of the Spirit. And even to this day, without the ministry of the Holy Spirit in giving life to spiritually dead sinners, regenerating them, and enabling them to see and understand the work of the church without this, would have died with the ascension of Christ. That's where it all would have ended if Jesus would have just left us without another helper. But this other helper, this other paraclete, continues and enables and empowers Christ's continuing reign on earth. If you've never believed in Jesus savingly, if you've never obeyed Him, if you've never believed Him because... You've never loved Him. The first application of this passage that we've looked at today is for the unbeliever to look to Christ and to see the love of God displayed in that and to repent and believe. If you don't believe, if you don't believe, what is stopping you right now from pleading with God to help you believe? What stops you from begging God to put His Spirit in you, giving you spiritual life to believe and spiritual illumination to understand? The only thing, the only thing that prevents you from coming to Christ in true saving faith is pride. Sinful pride. But know this. Know that Jesus invites you you who have, never, who have never believed, He invites you to receive His perfect righteousness in exchange for your sin. Know that there is no other way for you to be reconciled unto God. And know that if you truly desire to come to Christ, He will never cast you away. And if you have a desire to come to Christ, what you will find, if you look, is that He's already been working on you to bring you to this point. So pray for help. Beg for help. And know that if you truly do, if this is what you truly desire, 
you will know this helper, this advocate too. And He will dwell within you. And He will empower you to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But if you're already a Christian, the application for this passage is found in realizing the the fuller context. Jesus is comforting His disciples for tough times that were ahead for them. They were going to face some fierce opposition. All the disciples would be sentenced to death. Only John. John would be the one that God would preserve even beyond a death sentence. But he would be sent to Patmos Island. But all of the disciples, all of them, had tough times ahead. They were going to need God with them. And part of the comfort that Jesus was giving them was in assuring them that this other advocate, the Spirit of truth, would be with them forever until the end. If, if you would be comforted, think about it this way, if you would be comforted, if you're going through a tough time, if Jesus came to your door and said, hey, I, I'm, I'm here to, to lead you, why don't you just follow me, stick with me, and, and I will strengthen you, and I will lead you, and I will comfort you, and all these things. You'd, you'd think, great, I'm going to make it, right? Jesus did not send someone who is less than Himself to be with us, friends. The Holy Spirit is not less than He is. Jesus gave us an equal to be with us, to dwell within us. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand God's Word in order that we may know and understand God's will and in order that we may pray and work in accordance with His will. Can you do those things on your own strength and by your own understanding? No, you can't. But with the Spirit dwelling within you, you can He will subdue your sin. He will convict you of sin. He will enable you and teach you to love Christ truly. And He alone can empower you to walk according to Christ's commandments. The church throughout the ages would do the same works and greater works than Christ by walking in love-motivated obedience to Him and by relying on the Holy Spirit and His power. The secret to walking in the power of the Spirit, friends, is not found, by the way, in wanting more of the Spirit. You'll find plenty of movements where people are like, oh, we just need more of the Holy Spirit. No, we don't. We already have Him. We already have Him. No, rather than desiring and praying for more of the Spirit, let me encourage you with this. To desire and to pray that the Holy Spirit would have more of you. The person who does that is the kind of person that Jesus, to this very day, continues to use and do great works through. The same works that Jesus did, and even greater. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the comfort that Jesus gave to the disciples with these words. Because there are times, Lord, when we need comfort too. And we know how You would respond because of what You said to Your disciples on that night in the upper room. So we thank You for the comfort and the strength that we gather from these passages. 
And we pray, O Lord, that You would help us to navigate difficult waters in this life, leaning on Your promises that You made in these passages. Thank You for the promise of another helper, an advocate, someone who would be with us, someone who would be in us, someone who would be for us, someone who would guide us and strengthen us and teach us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. We pray that by His power we would not only have a deeper understanding of who He is and what He does, but that we would have a deeper understanding of Your Word and the power by the Holy Spirit to walk according to Your Word. And we ask these things in order that Christ would be glorified in our lives. We pray these things in His name. Amen.